Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the book of Acts. Am I crackling a little bit on the microphone? No? Okay. The book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Listen now for God's word to you. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it was written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins, and I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all the other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever else is strangled from the blood." For in every city for generations past, Moses has, has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A long reading. Who picked that? Um, so one of the things I do for my own entertainment sometimes, this is kind of the sick pastor entertainment, is to read the blog posts of pastors or church consultants about all of the sort of conflicts that churches have. And sometimes the conflicts that they have are rather funny to me. Uh, like I read about a church that had on the, on the docket for their church council meeting the appropriate length for the pastor's beard. <laughs> and if there are any session members here this morning, this is not an invitation to you to put that under the new business. The length of my beard is my business alone. 
Uh, churches, of course, have fought for centuries since the very beginning about what belongs at communion, what happens at communion. There was a, a church that got into a really serious dispute one Sunday because I guess in the communion cups was cran grape juice instead of just regular grape juice. And every good Protestant knows that what belongs in the communion cup is Welch's full sugar grape juice. <laughs> and of course, in churches, buildings become the sources of conflict, right? There was, I read about one church that spent two whole session meetings debating about the new weed eater they needed for the yard. Or another church that spent 45 minutes debating on a new filing cabinet for the church office. First, which color should it be? Should it be black or brown? Should it be two, three, or four drawers? And then there was my church growing up when we uh, told the elders of the church we wanted to paint the youth from. They said, it's great. What color do you want? Do you want white or off-white? <laughs> we wanted Nate royal blue. And so we painted it royal blue, and we wrote our names, signed our names on one of the walls in permanent marker. And there was a lot of pearl clutching at that. But church conflict is as old as the church itself. We have been fighting and arguing since pretty much the very beginning. And it's funny to laugh over some of the trivialities that we have argued about filing cabinets and grape juice in the chalice or cran grape juice or whatever it might be, the pastor's beard length, whatever it is. We fight about some of these small things, a reminder that we are a family and families do bicker and fight. But there are times and places where we do and we have throughout our history as the Christian community fought and argued about the things that matter the most, argued about the things that are the very heart, the very center of the gospel. And this is where we enter into the story here this morning. We enter into the very first council in church history. We've heard of the, the Nicene Creed, which arises from the Nicene Council, debating the, in what sense Jesus is both human and God, and we've, there's other councils that'll come up later on, debating the nature of the Trinity and so forth. But this first council in church history centers around the inclusion of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles, so in the worldview of the New Testament, you have the Jews and the Gentiles, which are just everybody else. The question is, are the Gentiles included? And if so, how are they included? And this is a really big question in the New Testament. Um, it's important to keep in mind that early on, the earliest Jesus movement, before there even was a Christianity, it was an entirely Jewish movement. That Jesus was a Jewish Messiah who fulfilled Jewish hopes and expectations, albeit in ways that nobody expected. And so all of these early followers of Jesus, they kept kosher, they followed the law, their men were circumcised. And so this is a, a Jewish movement. But then this strange thing starts happening early on in the book of Acts. It details the story of the earliest church. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, start committing themselves to the Jewish Messiah. They want to follow him. They are wanting to put his way of life into practice. And this happens very early in the book of Acts. Like in Acts chapter 5, we have the story of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip goes out to the wilderness, meets this, this man who is, a, is essentially the secretary of the treasury for the Ethiopian queen, and he has been reading the Old Testament, and he wants to know who it talks about. And so Philip comes up to him and has a conversation, and he says, Philip, what's to keep me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. And there he's baptized. The first person who is baptized out of the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, in the book of Acts, is a 
foreign uh, treasury secretary from a foreign empire, foreign kingdom. And then as we move along in the book of Acts, we come to Acts chapter 10 where we meet Peter and Peter has a dream where all of this unclean food is set in front of him and God says, get up Peter and eat. And Peter protests because he's Peter. He says, God, I've never touched anything unclean. I will never touch this food that you set before me. And God says to Peter, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. Now, of course, dreams are meant to be metaphorical. This is not just simply about whether or not Peter can eat bacon now or not, right? Or a cheeseburger. It's about how God has called the Gentiles clean. It is a metaphor for God's inclusion of those who are outsiders. And then after this, Peter goes and he meets with a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion no less, And Peter goes into his household, which was not allowed at the time, and eats with him and shares in a discussion with his entire household. And his entire community commits themselves to the way of Jesus. They are all baptized. And then they have their own Pentecost experience. The Spirit descends on them. We all know about Pentecost. We just celebrated it a few weeks ago. All these Jewish people from all of the nations across the world come to Jerusalem. They begin to speak in different languages. There's fire and wind and all of this exciting stuff. That was just the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2. But now here in Acts chapter 10, after Peter has this conversation, the Gentiles too have their Pentecost moment. The Spirit descends and they too begin to speak in other languages. It's an amazing scene. We can sort of imagine it. But when the church back in Jerusalem hears what Peter did, their pastor did, they call a special session meeting. Peter, what were you doing? What are you doing eating with people you're not supposed to be eating with? And so Peter recounts his story, how he experienced and saw the Spirit at work among those who are outside of the community. And to the session's credit in Jerusalem, they don't have this long 45-minute, two-session debate they immediately say, well, who are we to stand in the way of God? So from the very outset of the book of Acts, you have the Spirit, the Spirit who gives birth to the church, who calls the church into being, the Spirit, and we should underline, highlight, and italicize that it is the Spirit doing this, the Spirit working among the Gentiles and including them in the things that God is doing, including them in the way of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. That becomes unavoidable at this point. But the question still remains, how are the Gentiles to be included? Because remember, this is an entirely Jewish movement. And they they don't keep kosher. They don't follow the law like the rest of the Jewish people do. They don't follow dietary restrictions. The men aren't circumcised. So how are the Gentiles to be included? This is what we enter into in Acts 15, this first council in church history, this debate about how are the Gentiles to be included. And there are some in the community who are saying, unless they are circumcised, they cannot be included. And that leaves me wondering, what does that mean for the women Gentiles? But the point remains, unless you become like everybody else, you can't be included. Enter in the Apostle Paul. Paul himself, a Pharisee, a member of this faction that uh, was saying that, that they have to be circumcised. And, and Paul is not normally known in our modern world for being this, this beacon of inclusivity. Um, 
But at the risk of sounding like Paul's publicist, uh, Paul is rather radical for his own time and place. That Paul is insistent throughout his life, unwavering, unequivocating throughout his life, that the Gentiles are to be included just as they are. And he stands up and he recounts his stories of all of the things that, that God has been doing among the Gentiles. And then Peter gets up and he retells his story, that same story we just talked about. It has to be an amazing, moving scene. All of the ways that God is at work among those who at this point are excluded from the community. And then, finally, the community says, everybody says, well, we cannot deny the work of the Spirit among the Gentiles. The Spirit is moving. But the thing that happens when the Spirit starts moving, the Spirit starts stretching people and and moving them beyond their comfort zones, is that people get a little bit nervous. That wild, free, unbridled Spirit, someone inevitably is going to try and put a bridle in the mouth of the Holy Spirit and try and pull the reins just a little bit. And the person who pulls the reins here in this story is James, the brother of Jesus, no less. He says, well, we can't deny all the work that God is doing among the Gentiles, so tell them that they don't have to be circumcised. Let's write a nice little theological statement about why. But they still got to keep the dietary regulations. The council in Jerusalem was so close. So close. God's love. But be sure to read the terms and conditions. God's inclusivity, but be sure to read the fine print. As I hear this story in Acts 15, I can't help but wonder, were there any Gentiles who were there at that council? Were there any Gentiles who were there as the Jewish Christians debated among themselves whether or not they could be included? Were they there to tell their own stories of how they had experienced the love and the grace of God, how, what Jesus meant to them, why they wanted to be included? Or is their story just filtered through other people? I really hope that there were Gentiles who were there. But I also can't help but wonder, what is it like to sit in a room where other people are debating your love, your lovability, your worthiness, your inclusivity? What's it like to sit there and to listen to people who are probably throwing Bible verses back and forth, both for and against your inclusion? As I hear this story in Acts 15, I can't help but think about those who in our world are still debated, those in our world who still have their humanity put up on dockets at presbytery meetings or diocesan conventions or whatever it might be, who have Bible verses thrown around for and against them. What's, I still think about them. I, I'm thinking specifically today of the LGBTQ community, a community that still has had its dignity, its humanity targeted, especially over the last several months. We've had law after law and state legislators targeting the LGBTQ community. 491 laws and state legislators across the country, including eight here in the state of Michigan. I think about our history as the mainline denominations, ours included, where human sexuality has been on the docket for decades now, debated now. What's it like to, to turn on the news and to hear another law being passed that's targeting your humanity? What's it like to have to have a theological statement written to, to secure your inclusion? What's it like to, to drive past a church and to read a sign that says, all are welcome, but to wonder, do they actually mean it? What's it like to drive past a church and to see a pride flag and wonder, do they, are they serious about it or is it just 
performative? What's it like to have your humanity debated and thrown back and forth? The thing is, while people's humanity gets debated and thrown back and forth in legislative sessions and in presbytery meetings or whatever it might be, the Spirit of God is already at work. That the Spirit of God has already called those who get debated and their humanity thrown around. They are already called beloved by the Spirit. Remember, bold, italicize, highlight that in this story. It is the Spirit who is at work calling everybody beloved. This is one of the reasons why I've stopped debating with people about LGBTQ inclusion. Because to me, someone's inclusivity, someone's lovability, someone's humanity is not up for debate. All of these church councils are is a decision on the part of the church whether or not they're going to get on board with the Spirit. They're going to take the bridle out of the Spirit's mouth and let them lead them even to places where it might scare them just a little bit. Because here's the thing. I think the inclusion of the Gentiles here in Acts 15 is not necessarily good news for them. I think it's good news for the church. Because the Gentiles already have the Spirit. The Spirit's already working among them, calling them beloved. But the church in Acts 15 needs the Gentiles. They need the Gentiles because the Gentiles will remind them and show them a God who is far bigger than they could have ever imagined God to be. That they will meet a God who is beyond any one nation or one group of people. They need the Gentiles in order to be the church that they are called to be. And I think the truth is, is that we all need theology that is done from perspective that is different than our own. And when I talk about theology, I, I mean it simply as ways of talking about and thinking about God. We all need theology that is done from a perspective that is different than our own. I remember when I was in seminary, I took a class called Feminist Theology. So this is just talking about God from the perspective of women. And uh, I remember the, the professor of that class, or one of the professors of that class, said, uh, Feminist theology is not just for women, it's also for the men in the room. You men also need feminist theology. And she was right. I needed feminist theology because it helped me to expand my understanding of God bigger than my own worldview. I needed feminist theology because it helped me to see and notice characters in biblical stories that I otherwise would have never noticed. We all need theology that is beyond the perspective of our own. This is, I think, especially true if we find ourselves to be part of the dominant culture, if we fit really easily within the world in which that exists now. I think that the, the white church needs uh, black liberation theology. I think that the wealthy American church needs Latin American liberation theology to remind it uh, of God's option for the poor, God's concern for the poor. And this morning, I want to highlight, I think that we especially need, whether we are gay or straight or bisexual or trans or wherever we fall on the spectrum, that all of us need theology that is done from the perspective of our LGBTQ siblings. And I say that personally. I say that as someone who has benefited from, who has recognized, who has been saved in so many ways by the perspective of our LGBTQ siblings. The ways that they think about God has been so important to me. One of those, for me especially, is the unconditional love of God. Growing in that understanding of that unconditional love of God. That growing up, I grew up with a certain Christianity, and I've been pretty candid about the Christianity that I grew up with, that, that preached a lot about a, an unconditional love of God, but then when we got down to it, it was pretty conditional. God loves you, but, well, word to the wise, the but cancels out the God loves you. 
God loves you, but you got to do all of the right things. you got to believe these things. You can't do this. You can't do that. And what my LGBTQ siblings have showed me, and what I have benefited from their ways of thinking about and talking about God, is a God whose love is truly unconditional. That God loves you with no fine print, no terms and condition. God loves you just as you are. As one of the pastors I listen to is a, a gay man, he says, you are God's miracle and not God's mistake. God loves you just as you are. And sometimes the greatest and most faithful response to that love is to accept it, to love yourself, to accept that you are accepted, to turn inward, to know that God loves the real you that hides inside. My LGBTQ siblings have showed me that, have I have benefited so greatly from that perspective. For my trans and non-binary siblings, I, I have benefited from thinking about God not simply as a black and white concept, but a, that our lives are lived along a spectrum. There was this beautiful article that was written by a, a trans theologian named Austin Harkey. It was written in the Christian century. And it says that, that God is not just the God of the day and night. God is not just the God of dry land and water. But God is also the God of those sort of liminal spaces. Marshes, sunsets, and sunrises. It's a beautiful concept. That God is not binary. God exists all along the spectrum. Um, that we, God does not fit into the boxes that we try to put God into. On this Sunday where we get ready to go out to the Berkeley Pride block party to celebrate love and inclusion and all of God's children, I am reminded that long before there were pride flags in every government building, long before there were pride block parties downtown, and every corporation in America changed their logo to include the pride flag, I'm reminded that the first pride was a riot, that in 1969, that the, at the Stonewall Inn in New York City, tired of being targeted for their, who they are, the, the LGBTQ community finally fought back. And from 1969, it took 30 more years before Pride Month was officially recognized. Then I'm reminded this morning that, that we all want love and inclusion in a world that looks a lot like what Jesus called the kingdom of God. But we only get there if we're willing to work for it, if we're willing to, to fight for it, to, to partner with others in making that world possible. That it doesn't just happen randomly, but it happens because there are people who are willing to get busy and do the work, that work of solidarity, love, justice. We all need theology that is done from the perspective of somebody other than our own, somebody from a different perspective than ours. And this is especially true for any of us who fit into that dominant culture, that there are so many different ways of seeing and understanding who God is. And so this morning, I personally give my thanks to the LGBTQ community and the ways that they have helped expand my understanding of God, for the ways that they have saved my faith in so many different ways. We could not be the church without you. Thanks be to God. Amen.